Even if it can still be profitable, there is zero interest among the space industry to reduce prices the current customers are willing to pay. Hello, spacers, and welcome to Space Roots. Today on the show, we have Geffen of... Oh, you know, I, sh I should have gone over the pronunciation before we started. At least you didn't say Geffen, so congrats. It's... <laughs> The correct way is Geffen Avraham. Geffen Avraham. Um, he's coming all the way from Israel. And uh, he's working on uh, open source small sat stuff. So uh, t tell us what you're about, what you're working on, kind of how you got there. Sure. So I'm working on, again, in, in, in three words, the far overused catchphrase of space democratization, except I believe that everyone space for everyone means space for everyone and not space for people who can spend a million dollars on an extra satellite or launch which is all in a snowing yeah um, so basically i think there are a number of you know key points which have to be addressed which are not addressed by the current world of small satellites which are necessary uh in order to achieve the goal of ultimate space democratization and I think the best analogy that can be made to what I'm, what I mean by it is, the introduction of the uh, Apple II and the Macintosh mm. in the '70s and '80s by Apple. Yeah. Yes. Um, I mean, before that, you had microcomputers, and microcomputers were a lot like today's micro satellites. You know, they were called micro because they weren't the size of a bus, right. but they were still the size of a desk, mm -hmm. and cost, like, yeah, they cost. The amount that an organization or university could afford, that's definitely not an individual. Right. Um, and I think the the thing that the space revolution needs is the equivalent of an Apple II or a Macintosh for mm -hmm. satellites. Because we're seeing the cost of launches go down a lot, but not as much in the satellite world. Yeah, yeah, no, I... Um... Actually, it's funny you mention that. Whenever I try to explain, because hardly anyone knows about open source, when I try to explain open source space, when I try to explain them what it is, I'm like, yeah, it's kind of like computers in like the 80s before like the Macintosh or before like it really like when things were just starting to get going. I mean, that's what I feel like we're at in, in the space community, which is really exciting. Yeah, definitely. We're in, we're in the homebrew space, the homebrew space era. <laughs> Oh, that is so cool. So, like, what what project, like, what project specifically are you working on, like, on the electronic side, like the uh, small set development? Are you, like, do you, do you work with like launching at all, or like, what what's your what's your thing? So a little bit of a little bit of both. So basically, um, the things that interest me most, um, which the things which I think are necessary are. First and foremost, avionics for the for small satellites, mm -hmm. which that is the place where I think there has actually occurred a tragedy in the last ten years or so. We were on the cusp of a small satellite revolution, and it reached its cusp. And then it's almost like you know, imagine imagine you know you're you're some you're a protagonist in a film, and you're trying to turn the villain of the movie to the light side, and you're on the cusp of turning in there, and then he decides, you know, I'm not going to do this, I'm going to go back to work for the evil emperor. <laughs> and so that's kind of what happened. We were, we, we were seeing, we were this close to when? what needed to happen. In the 90s? When, no, not in the 90s, in, in the past 10 years. So I think the small set revolution occurred between 2009 and 2013-14, and then it got swallowed up, and I'll tell you why. It's, it's oh, a very fascinating story. Yeah, do tell. I think. So in 2009 or so, at NASA Ames in Silicon Valley, they were working on a project called PhoneSat. And PhoneSat, you know, it came out of the fact that there was this scientist there who held up his BlackBerry and said, you know, how is it that the computer inside my BlackBerry is 10 times more powerful than the computer we're putting into our latest CubeSat, but it costs 100 times less? Mm -hmm. um, and to be to be one hundred percent clear, I just this is just a bomb I need to defuse before entering this topic. This is the subject of radiation hardening. Mm -hmm. The vast, the overwhelming majority of CubeSats launched today are not radiation hardened at all. They may have some minor circuitry, mm -hmm. you know, one or two circuits to 
stop SCLs or SCUs, mm -hmm. maybe stop the error detection correction software, but the actual hardware is the same as what you buy off the shelf. It's not radiation hardened one bit. And the again, in 99% of CubeSats. So I just wanted to fuse that before people say it has to be expensive because it's radiation hardened. So just a little... Right. I remember talking about Ben about that. Yeah, where, where it actually... Because it's so small and, yeah, more cost-effective. So it'd be more like shipping, throwing your Arduino up there to orbit space. Unless... Yeah, our, our, exactly. So Arduinos are have actually been flown, and it's actually part of the story. It's, really? It's, it's, <laughs> Yeah, All right, we'll continue. You defuse the bomb. So, now what? So PhoneSat. So PhoneSat was the literally the idea of let's take a phone and put it inside a satellite. And that is what they did. They <laughs> literally, they took, at first they, they didn't even take it apart. They took the Nexus 1 that they bought. Was the it Nexus a Nokia? <laughs> no, not the Nokia. It was it's a, it already was radiation argument. <laughs> it, it was a Nexus S, I believe. A Samsung Nexus. Like a very early Google smartphone built with Samsung. And... They stuck it on its side, you know, at a 45 degree angle, because that's the only way it would fit into the CubeSat frame. And then they stuffed in a bunch of batteries and put in an Arduino to act as a watchdog to reset it, you know, if, it, if something happened. Um, and they put it on a rocket. It didn't even have solar panels. Stuck a tape measure antenna, put it on a rocket, some Antares, I think, and launched it up. And this is so janky. <laughs> I love it. Went. And it actually, they actually managed to get photos out of that thing. They could use, they said, you know, the phone has almost all of the sensors and devices oh and electronics God. we have on the satellite. So that was PhoneSat 1.0. And then they did PhoneSat 2.0, which was more advanced. They, uh, what they did was they took apart the electronics of the phone and they built around that. So instead of sticking a literal phone inside, they uh, took it apart. Okay. And they were building yeah, and they, and they were building these satellites, which were at the time the most powerful satellites ever launched, by the way. Um, and that's, that's, that's saying something. And again, aside from maybe military ones, the most powerful, definitely the most powerful small satellites. And wow. um, they just launched them up. And at least some of them did work many quite well. And um, at some point, the people behind these phone sets uh, realized, you know, this thing has enormous potential to totally shake up everything in the industry. Right. Um, this is like revolutionary. We can build like satellites which are so much better than what everyone else sells and which are so much cheaper. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we're, we're literally in Silicon Valley. Let's do something. Right. And so three of these people were, um, what's their name? Will Marshall, Robbie Schlinger, and Chris Boishazen, if that's his name. Mm -hmm. And, uh, they went and they founded a small company called Cosmogia. Um, even before the phone sats were launched, before they were launched, they knew how crazy this was. They founded it even back then. <gasps> That's amazing. And they, had, they built their first satellites in a garage and launched them only shortly after this, their own phone sets. They launched, oh. they built them even quicker than at NASA. And they were an enormous success. They were so much better than everything else out there. And they started raising money and launching more satellites. And eventually they rebranded themselves and you know their company today. It is called Planet Labs, and they have like. Oh, I, don't, I don't know their, that. I don't actually don't know that company. Okay, so Planet Labs. All right. Wow. Planet, I did not know that. Wow. Yeah, Planet Labs is probably the most, at least in terms of low Earth orbit, Earth observation. It is the most advanced CubeSat manufacturer. Period. I mean, I've been to their laboratory. I've been, and I've also seen satellites that I've personally worked on with hardware from commercial off-the-shelf manufacturers like Isis or, you know, Pumpkin or whatever, and wow. there is no comparison. There is no comparison there. They are light years ahead of everyone, including most NASA satellites, I might add. Really? Uh, yes. Yes. I mean, <laughs> they, it is, it is, they, 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 just think about it. They had this, they've been following this approach, which yielded right. amazing results. They've been following it for the past 10 years. Wow. They, their satellites today, you know, while... Well, commercial, commercial off-the-shelf, you know, satellites usually that you buy, CubeSats will, you know, maybe give you, you know, one, one, two, maybe ten megabits downlink speed, and that's considered high. These people do one point eight gigabits. It's faster what? than your internet. Yeah, from space, it's faster than your internet. Um, what? For, yeah, and that's insane. Ultimate comparison I do is of between the Planet Labs. 
uh, high-speed downlink radio version 2 and the NASA ISARA mission. ISARA had a deployable triple panel uh, reflectoring in the KA band, which could only do, even this mass, pretty massive reflector, it could only do 100 megabits per second. Planet did 1.8 gigabits with a four tiny um, helical antennas, roughly the size of a paper clip. Um, oh yeah, of course, of course, you know, there are, there, are, there are contributing factors here, but they are very, very advanced. Now, they were not the only people doing this at the time. There were two other main, there were more than two, but there were two main other initiatives to apply these concepts to space that I can think of, which were, um, one of them was Strand 1, built by Surrey Satellite Technology. And Strand 1, they, they did something very similar to PhoneSat, except more advanced. They they built a pretty advanced satellite, not not a kit bash basic thing, but a pretty advanced one. Mm. And then they added a phone into it, and they put a camera pointing at the phone, and you could like use the phone in space. And the idea was to try and eventually, like there was a separate computer, like a normal computer in the satellite, and the idea. Was so they were just trying, they were just focused on taking a selfie of Earth. <laughs> no, not just that. The the idea was the idea was after we demonstrate that this is working, we can switch to the phone to run the satellite and see if it works. And if it doesn't work, we can switch back to the normal computer. It was mm. like a test. And unfortunately, a few months later, Strand 1, contact was lost with it before they could switch to the oh, phone. No. Yeah. I think this contact was later reestablished, but as far as I know, they never switched to the phone. So it basically, the phone has been doing nothing in space all these years. It's, it's still <laughs> up there. Uh. Yeah. And the, the final attempt was uh, the final strand. <laughs> it was <laughs> nice a one. company called a company called Ardusat. Ardusat's idea was let's stick Arduinos in space on satellites and use oh. them as like educational tools for people and students and you know especially oh. younger students. Oh. And they launched Ardusat, and Ardusat had a board with ten Arduino processors on it, so you could run ten people's different projects on it at once in space. And it worked quite well, and they launched Ardusat 2 and 2X, maybe. And at some point, Ardusat um, also decided to raise money and become a startup company. They were also located in Silicon Valley. And they decided to, just like Planet, pivot to a Constellation services approach. Planet sells, but Planet doesn't sell satellites, they sell pictures of the Earth. Mm -hmm. Spire uh, sells um, Spire Global, which is the company that Ardusat became. Mm. Um, later became now they sell weather data, ship tracking, plane tracking, etc. And they also host payloads, but they don't sell satellites either. So they also continue developing their ArduSat technology for the past ten years, and they and they also took it all for themselves, just like Planet, to do their own service business instead of releasing it to the world so that the world could build new things. And so you that I think is the bad thing. Yeah, that is that is really too. That, that's terrible. Yeah, and so you have this boom, but you say that there 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 was like a crash, like or uh, there was no crash. Absolutely no. It's 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 not a, it's not a okay. Have you ever seen a Saturn V launch? This is a very weird analogy. Um, um I've I I can't believe this, but I have not seen a Saturn V launch. Like I mean, obviously, obviously not in the nineteen seventies, but on YouTube. Um, right, right. <laughs> no, I hopped in my time. Let me just hop in my time machine real quick. Uh, get the <laughs> quantum cheese. We'll, we'll, we'll see you live. We have been given... uh, so just just a random random tip of info. So after the Saturn V launches, the F1 engines ignite, and they emit this massive cloud of fire and smoke. And then what happens? It actually gets sucked in back into the launch chamber. You can actually see this in a Saturn V launch. Oh, interesting. A giant cloud comes up, they get sucked back in. So what happened here is there was this massive boom, and these two companies, they, there was no crash. They simply sucked in all the boom into themselves and took it all, they, they took it all into themselves, and they continued booming with it. There was no crash. They just, they, they exclusively benefited from it. And it's as if, it's, it's the equivalent I would give to it is as if in the 1980s, Apple and, uh, Apple and IBM developed these amazing, you know, mm -hmm. PCs, the Macintosh, the IBM PC. And they said, this is amazing. You know, we can, this is revolutionary. 
but we're not going to sell this to the public. Um, um, we're going to we're going to simply put up a farm of a thousand of these things and sell people services. If someone wants to to do, I don't know, to get some typewritten document formatted for computers, they send us the document and we use the Mac to format it. But we're not going to sell them the Mac. It's the equivalent of that. Oh, I see. They took I their tech for themselves. And so we live in the universe with the Mac and the IBM PC. Their technology kept growing exponentially. Apple and IBM now have you know really powerful computers, but they were never released, and people don't have personal computers to this day. And they still, it's still something that remains in the tens of thousands of dollars range and, and even, out of the. And even the like, if, if you go, um, I mean, this is a common theme of the show. But how expensive building small satellites is? Like, if you were just get all off-the-shelf components. Like uh, reaction wheels costing seven thousand dollars. Absolutely, and just, absolutely. Like what the heck? Like this is. I know. This I know. Is dumb. It is. It is, and not just that. There have been so many demonstrations that there is absolutely zero technical reason this should be this way. Again, again, this is for Leo satellites. If you're sending a mission to Jupiter, yes, it's not going to be cheap, but. <laughs> You're, chances are you're not sending a mission to Jupiter or to Pluto or Saturn or whatever. So, you know, you for Leo satellites, there is zero technical reason why it should not cost more than a phone. Uh, I mean, you look at so many examples. You look at the fact that Surrey, for example, they tested recently a Raspberry Pi in space. They used it to control a satellite in space recently. Mm -hmm. An unmodified Raspberry Pi computer mo compute module. The Arduinos on Artisat, they work perfectly in space. Mm -hmm. uh, they're, furthermore, all the commercial off-the-shelf components you get, they're they're built from the same stuff as the Raspberry Pi. They're, they're not different. They're just... So, really, I think the main problem in the space industry is a fun... The reason it costs so much is no technical reason. It's a fundamental lack of vision. But I'll mm -hmm. get to that later. I'll get to that later, I think. Um, okay. you, were talking, you were talking earlier about the cost. So... PhoneSat, the PhoneSats actually cost only $5,000 to make. Um, and much of that $5,000 went to stuff like, went to commercial off-the-shelf parts. For example, the um, the structure was a pumpkin structure that cost like $1,200. Again, it's a piece of sheet metal. There's zero reason why it should cost $1,200. It is actually cheaper, it is cheaper to download a CubeSat structure off of GitHub from one of the commercial uh, uh, from one of the open source CubeSat projects, mm -hmm. send it to a machine shop, have them build it for you. That'll be like three times cheaper than buying one from any company in the world. <laughs> yeah, it is, and and it's it's ridiculous. So so even what? even with all these commercial components, it was only five thousand dollars, and there is no reason why it cannot cost even less, like fifty dollars south. Fifty dollars south was not fifty dollars; it was two hundred fifty dollars. But right. Still. So my my theory. Tell me if I was am wrong. But it's not that, it's not that there is, um, it's a market share issue, because the, yes. the the type of people that need this is very small, but those people need there's a very high demand in that small group, but it's not enough that they can. There's not enough. Yes, there's not enough for economies of scale. Yes. Nor for high demand to force the price down, and enable its economies. Yes. But. And there is, as such, there's, even if it can still be profitable, there's zero interest among the space industry to reduce prices that current customers are willing to pay. And mm -hmm. there's no interest, even if they can profitably reduce prices, they have no interest in doing so. Yeah. Um, and this is similar to what Zach Manchester actually said uh, when I discussed this with him. Uh, for, the, for the listeners who are unaware, Zach Man Manchester was the initiator of the Kicksat program at Cornell University, which Ooh. was a... 3U CubeSat, which raised money through Kickstarter and launched uh, a number of, actually hundreds of small sprites, uh, which were satellites on a chip from it, deployed the, hundreds of them into space and they transmitted back to Earth. They're actually prototypes for the Breakthrough Starshot program, which wants to send some more chipsets, chipsets propelled by solar sails to Alpha Centauri. He's also, yeah, he's also, by the way, he's, Jack, Zach Man Manchester is one of the foremost leaders in the open source space community. Oh, should, we should talk uh, to him. We should get him on the show sometime. Oh, you definitely should. He is, he is um, among among the space, the open source space, he is a legend. Uh, <laughs> you know, Kicksap 1 actually failed uh, because there was a little It kicked radiation. the bucket. Yep. A little a little radiation, you know, particle hit, hit the chip, flipped a bit, and oh, didn't no. deploy the sprites in it, and it actually burned up 
they were they tried desperately to send it a command to deploy the sprites, but there was like a two week timer on it. Oh and no. in these two weeks it fell into the atmosphere and deorbited and burned up. Oh, so they had to send a repeat mission. Luckily the repeat mission actually did work and they detected signals from the sprite. So there you go. Oh now, boy. here's the thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Kicksat 2 actually tested the prototype for the technology, which I think which Manchester's lab has developed, which I think is Again, you should talk to him and Max, or Max Holiday. Max Holiday is his PhD student um, about this. It launched something called PyCubed. PyCubed is an open source hardware and software. Uh, CubeSat avionics uh, and main control board, is, which also enables LoRa telecommunication, um, which is programmable entirely in Python and enables to, yeah, to make these things much cheaper and easier. Now, they're, they're, it's so cheap to make that we're actually giving them away to people. Unfortunately, there was a waiting list. You could sign up to the waiting list and they would give you one. Unfortunately, they still haven't started delivering one. And <laughs> like almost a year later, there's such high demand. Uh, so, yeah, but I, I think PyCube is a, is, a yeah. is a major step forward for the entire community. But that's something you should talk to Zach or Brian yeah. about. Yeah, no, that, that sounds really good. You know, I mean, what I love is that, like, growing up, you know, always like saw um, like curiosity, you know, spirit opportunity, like all those big missions. And you're like, you know, I would love to work on that, but I know that's impossible. But now like people in their garages are making these huge, not, not necessarily breakthroughs in the sense of like exploration or maybe even innovation, but breakthroughs in the sense of, Hey, this used to cost $10,000. You can do it all for instead for like you know twelve hundred or something you know like like incredible yeah. price reductions and you're just like wow this is so cool oh, yeah yeah definitely yeah no, uh, yeah so where was I so yeah I was we were hey, where were you it's funny it's funny you actually mentioned bars rovers there's a lot of people working on making rovers cheaper cheaper nowadays. Um, you know, you have you have Astrobotic for one, they're trying to make the Cube Rover standard, but you also have this really strange company, which I only heard about recently, last IAC, I believe, called Spacebit in the UK. And they're building this Spacebit? incredibly- Spacebit. Yeah, they're working on this incredibly strange uh, CubeSat-shaped rover, which is, imagine a CubeSat with a little Red eye like Cal Oh, I see. Uh, this is this is so super villain. Like, if there's and, a if, wait, if, yeah. Wait, wait, wait. And spider legs. It has spider legs. <laughs> there is no way that thing's gonna not gonna kill me. <laughs> that they is want to take, they're gonna take over the moon. This is their master villain plan to take over the moon. <laughs> oh, the CEO better better be a have a very super villain esque vibe to him. Yeah, probably. <laughs> <laughs> completely random supervillain fact. I once, I once came. I was once thinking of names for supervillainous characters, and came up with the name Baron von Schnitzler. I googled that name, and I turned out it turned out there was actually a man in history Baron. called the Baron von Schnitzler, and he was a Nazi war criminal. <laughs> oh my gosh! <laughs> that is. <laughs> Oh, that is that that is sad, but like kind of funny. <laughs> Let's put it this way: there are times when your prejudice is one hundred percent correct. This was one of the times. Oh boy! Oh boy! So yeah, Spacebit is such a strange company, and really strange is also also the, some of the companies they're working with to build their stuff. I mean. The Ecuadorian Civil Space Agency, which is not actually affiliated with the Ecuadorian government, it's a private organization. It's weird. <laughs> it's weird. really weird. Anyway, anyhow, uh, wow. before before I I, I I could get into the the topic of what I was saying earlier of the fundamental lack of vision, but mm -hmm. I think before that, I, it's it's important to talk about some of the some of what I think why I think this capability needs to exist. Mm -hmm. um, so let's put it this way. When I was around five years old, I watched one of the uh, Amas satellites built by the Israeli company Spacecom. Mm -hmm. Well, actually not built by them. 
they're built by Israel Aerospace Industries. They're contracted by Spacecom. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I watched one of those launch into space, and I was mesmerized. I thought to myself, I need to, I want to build a satellite as well. So, you know, how hard it can, can it be? You just make, take a cardboard box, wrap it with gold foil. I mean, they're all wrapped with gold foil, aren't they? And stick on some, uh, you know, panels, you know, the solar panels onto it. Some lights. Yeah, how hard can it be? Into space. <laughs> uh, and I did not build that satellite when I was five, but uh, the idea never never left my head really. And so it actually, I was actually, it actually came back to me when I heard about the PhoneSat project mm-hmm. uh, for the first time. And I realized at that point that I really did want to do this at some point for real. And so I actually began uh, building these things when I was around 16 years old. Oh, really? I joined this, yeah, I joined these lab- this laboratory in Israel, which was actually the first laboratory. Um, the first, okay, this group was the first group of teenagers in the world ever to build a satellite that actually worked in space. Really? Like, yeah, a lot of CubeSats don't work in space. Like, they get launched successfully and all that, but they just don't work. It's, it's the worst. Um, not that I know, we, we have a perfect track record. Uh, none of our satellites has ever failed, but it's it's. I would imagine it's the worst because. How did you do? If, like, how on earth did this sixteen-year-old was able to launch a CubeSat? Like, how? So let's put it this way, um, and this is, I was I was intending to get this to this earlier, but I think there are a number of there are a number of initiatives around the world. Sadly, not all of them are equal, and I'll get to that later, but which are designed to someone have the bright idea of having teenagers build satellites mm. now in, in some cases that is this is merely what i what i would term a scam in other words you have a program there are sadly many of these programs where the students don't actually build a satellite what actually happens is the some administrator uses the school's name the fact that they're an educational institution to win a free launch from nasa oh. then this is usually done, by the way, in, in, in conjunction with a satellite integrator, which is a, the code word for the person who actually does all the real work. And this company builds the satellite. The students don't even see it or touch it. They, well, they may put it into the dispenser thingy, but they don't actually build it or program it. They, oh, God. They, they just, they, their name and existence is used That's to basically give a free launch to the satellite company. And then what happens is they set up a satellite curriculum, quote-unquote, these students at their school where they basically play around with Arduinos that sent beep beep on the radio and they call that learning about satellites and uh. and at the end they don't know anything about satellites really they might know how to name you know the, the so, so many basic systems of a the satellite they might say oh it has a radio it has a battery it has a whatever right. but they don't actually they have no clue how to how the satellite was actually able to filter how to operate it in our case luckily that was not the case the case was of a certain individual, a certain man, who wished to wished to operate a, run a satellite laboratory, and this is at least my theory. He he reasoned that it would actually be cheaper uh, in all respects to this this guy this this mm-hmm. guy he he figured that it would be cheaper instead of hiring engineers to work for you. It is actually cheaper to train high school students <laughs> satellite engineers. And have them build it for you, and then you get uh, you get unpaid workers. Right. Uh, <laughs> and they build it for you, and and you know the beauty of this thing is there are two types of school satellite programs. There are those that get kids into engineering, and there are those that make kids become engineers in reality. Yeah. And in this case, the satellite would the satellites would not exist without the students because the students do all the work. Right. So. And, and you learn, yeah. I bet you learned so much about satellites, like... And, oh, definitely. And, and so because you learn not with fake pretend lessons, but by being given impossible tasks that to mm-hmm. this day, it's, you know, you look back and you say, how did I do this? <laughs> and it, you, you hand this group of teenagers impossible tasks and you say, tasks and you say to them, you have to do this. And lo and behold, they actually do it. And, they have launched, and, you, and, you, and you get to a point where you launch three satellites successfully uh, oh. which 
worked perfectly. That is that is so that is such an amazing story. Oh my goodness. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's it's pretty wild. I mean, we again we were there was one com- there was one satellite which was launched before our lab built by high schoolers from Thomas Jefferson High School in Alexandria, Virginia. It was launched but did not work. Um, there were actually. And actually, for until 2017, when a school in Brazil launched a TubeSat into orbit, which worked for like seven days, we were the only group of teenagers ever to have it built wow. a successful satellite, period. We wow. held that record for three years. Yeah. Dang. During that time, yeah. During that time, we were also the youngest group in the European Union's QB50 program. Oh my goodness. That which is... was this... That is beautiful. It was, it was the swarm of like 50 satellites, which were supposed to be launched by 50 universities around the world, around well, the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and I say the world because I don't think there were any American ones, but there were like European ones and Israeli ones, Chinese ones, even um, mm. Northwestern Polytechnical University built, but even though they're not in the European Union, <laughs> but uh, there were out of these like 50 something satellites that were supposed to be launched, only 28 made it to the launch pad. And out of them, only like 10 actually returned any useful scientific data. Wow. And ours was one of them. That's, that is, that, that's just, oh, that's, that's such a great story. Oh my gosh. Yeah, it's, it's pretty wild that it's reality. <laughs> oh, yeah. You, you, you sound so nonchalant about it. The coolest thing I did when I was 16 was, um, gosh, I, I started a robotics team uh, with First. First Tech Challenge was like this robotics team. Started yeah, a robotics yeah. team. And, yeah, and yeah, I thought I was doing some pretty cool stuff. <laughs> well, to, to be fair, I was never good at First Competitions. Our team already, always lost. Uh, <laughs> <sighs> Like we were one of those. We were a dis. We were always a dysfunctional team, which, like, was always like basically building everything at the last minute and hoping. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. That was us. <laughs> With satellites, you can't do that. <laughs> at least, at least you can't do that and maintain a perfect track record. <laughs> right. 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 Well, I think that also the problem is, you know, it's teenagers, so you have all the teenage drama. You have the teenage. You know, like all all the all the crap that that, that teenagers go through, yeah. except in a team or capacity. That's true. That's true. Uh, I mean, that's that's why we were lucky to have. We were very lucky to have a. Um, so, the, are you familiar with Space IL? No, I'm not. Okay, the the moon lander, the Beresheet moon lander that was launched and crashed into the moon last year, the Israeli moon lander. Oh, I I might have heard a news headline about that, but nothing. Yeah, so it's 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 funny how the rest of okay, it's funny for me how the rest of the world heard about this like last year because I've been following them since like twenty ten. <laughs> uh, uh, what's funny is I actually actually when I in twenty ten when I, again I was quite young back then I actually offered to donate the money. Like a, a couple of tens of dollars that I had because I really wanted them to reach the moon. And the funny thing is, I met their founder ten years later, and he still remembered that email. <laughs> that is so. That is that is so touching. I mean, wow. He said, he said, like you know, we've been telling people for the last ten years about this really enthusiastic kid who wanted to donate his money to us in 2010. I had no idea that was you. <laughs> oh my goodness. <laughs> um, that is amazing. <laughs> yeah. So I, I've been very lucky to get to know some people from there. It's, it's, it's a great, it's a great organization, at least from, from what I've been exposed to. I've also heard less, less positive th- things better from other people, but the people I know who've worked in it have been quite impressive. We were very lucky to have one of their uh, former project managers and system engineers um, involved in our project as well. And, um, you know, having, having someone who'd worked on a moon lander before definitely helped give a lot of mentorship for such a program to succeed. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And so is, is that like the Israeli space agency sort of? Is that kind of what it is or...? Is what like do you a mean? Entity like the the the, the company. Space IL is a private organization. It's a nonprofit. Oh wow! It's, well, so they were a private non-for-profit was trying to yeah, land something they, on the moon. They, they, 
So in 2010, you know, they or 2009, maybe they announced the Google Lunar X Prize. You know, 20 million dollars to the first person to land oh, a private spacecraft that. on the moon. Yeah, and in the end, Google took their money back. They said, "We're not funding this prize anymore." Like after 10 years. That's stupid. And only yeah, it was, and only a year later, SpaceIL did their attempt. So SpaceIL was founded in traditional Israeli fashion a month before the deadline ended. Right. <laughs> <laughs> it, was these, it was these three engineers who met in a bar. And I actually think one of them lives in the Bay Area nowadays, I think. Oh, that's I don't know. beautiful. <laughs> um, they met They like met together in a bar and sketched out this Coke can-sized spaceship in on a piece of like note paper. And they still saved that paper. They showed it to me. And oh they said, let's go to the moon. And eventually the <laughs> spacecraft grew from a Coke can to a washing machine. And they only received like a couple million dollars from me. Israeli Ministry of Science out of their $100 million budget. Wow. So, so how did they raise most, the money? A lot of it from private organizations and rich people. Like Sheldon Adelson donated like 20 million bucks. And eventually, um, there was like, they found they found a billionaire to donate, to be their like billionaire. You know, every every organization like this needs their resident billionaire. Yes, like, you know, yes, definitely. Virgin has Richard Branson. SpaceX has Elon Musk. Uh, Blue Origin has Jeff Bezos. <laughs> <laughs> um, even Sierra Nevada Corporation, Aaron and Fatih Osman are billionaires. Although then again, they became billionaires from Sierra Nevada, not vice versa. That's, mm. I have a lot of respect for them. They're, they're these two people who were born in Turkey. Neither were in the U.S. They bought this company with 26 people. And with their hard work and grit, they never made a fortune in the internet. They never became a dot-com billionaire. They worked hard for like 20 years, and they're now self-made billionaires. Wow. Out of... And they became billionaires in space, unlike Branson or Musk. Wait, or really? Bezos. How did they become billionaires? I'm fine. I thought you know. I thought I knew a lot about space and space companies, and now I'm realizing as I'm talking to you, I know nothing. <laughs> so that, that might be that might be because I read too much. No, this is amazing. It's <laughs> like a gold mine over here. So yeah. So I mean, what happened was they again they came to the U.S. They worked here for a while, and then they bought this company. Sierra Nevada Corp when it was a tiny contractor with 26 people and today it has like let's see it has thousands uh, let's see uh, I'm gonna Google this I don't I may be an encyclopedia but I don't know how many employees they have 4,000 <laughs> employees 4,000 employees okay Wikipedia knows uh, and then they just you know for 20 years they slowly built up the company acquiring companies delivering on contracts growing and growing and buying new stuff and acquiring even more companies, and eventually they um, also started the Dream Chaser program. The Dream Chaser is this um, mini space shuttle based on decades of canceled Soviet and American programs to build uh, space planes that fit into the payload fairing of a spacecraft and can launch people up and down from space. And um, it was actually based on the Bohr 4, the HL-20, various programs. The Bohr 4 was Russian, the HL-20 was NASA, they canceled them both, sadly, but they are developing it. They oh, they're working so, so cool. hard. Oh my goodness! Through failure. When, when the Crew Dragon was just launched in an alternate universe, the Crew Dragon was a dream chaser. They sadly lost onto that contract to Boeing. And nevertheless, despite losing in 2014, the Crew contract to Boeing, they kept going. And uh, in a year or two, they're launching, they actually won the cargo contract for the ISS. They're launching Dream Chaser. And, next year, the year after that, to the ISS to deliver cargo and, and back. And it lands on a runway. It's pretty cool. Yeah, um, I'm, I'm looking at pictures right here. It's like a it's like a very short, like, very, like, yeah, very scaled-down space shuttle. It's a space shuttle that you could fit two of in the space shuttle's payload bay. Yeah. Yeah, it's small. So small. Uh, especially with the folding wings. Um they were they had they, they have some crazy ideas with that. Back in the day, they actually wanted to launch it on you know strata launch. Mm, gosh, it's the giant the giant aircraft with two fuselages which launches rockets from. Oh, okay, cool. Yeah, so they wanted to launch it from that. That did not pan out, but it was a it was a plane in a plane. Um, now Sierra Nevada are actually part of they're one of the prime contractors. Well, not the prime contractor. That's Dynamics, but one of the main contractors in the. Uh, one of the three winning human landing systems proposals to build crewed um, lunar landers. Oh, really? The so they program. were, so, oh, 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 that's what they, so the, uh, what is it, the lunar, 
Lander proposals. Um, the, the, yeah, the weird one with the solar panels sticking out the top that's really, really close to the surface and has a bunch of fuel tanks on the side. Yeah, the, the one ugly close, one. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. It's, it's, okay. it's a really useful design because you have the crew right next to the surface. I mm -hmm. mean... No, no ladders or elevators, but unfortunately, the, the what's sad is the fuel is hypergolic, so, you know, it's hydrazine or nitrogen tetroxide, so you can't, it's not cryogenic, so you can't mine it on the moon and refuel it, like the uh, origin can. Um, that's why I think, yeah, the, the blue moon lander, that's its, that's the ace of its sleeve, the whole cryogenic refueling, but anyway, I know I'm not a tangent here. Oh, this, uh, is, this is good. Oh, so I, 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 yeah, because I remember, like, okay, so there's, you know, Blue Origins proposal, there's SpaceX proposal, and then there's just other random company that I've never heard of. I was like, oh. Dynetics, yeah, Dynetics is a company even I had barely heard of, barely, barely before this. It sounds too much like the L. Ron Hubbard book about Scientology. Uh, <laughs> yes. Uh, <laughs> to be fair, though, I'm, I'm still rooting for SpaceX because, see, I'm... I, before, well, actually, that's not true before. One of the side gigs I do is I front-end web development, branding, and UI UX stuff. So I'm a bit of a visual guy, and I love how the SpaceX uh, oh, lander it's, looks. Oh, it's, it's totally out of the future. It's, it's just, beautiful. oh, it's so gorgeous. And, like, the launch, oh, I, okay, you know, I've, I've, I've talked enough about the launch on this show. <laughs> but the SpaceX launch was so good. Oh, uh, yeah. I like, there was, was no it, rattling? Was, okay, anyways. <laughs> it was the second best SpaceX launch I've ever seen. Wait, wait, what's the, the first one? What was the first Falcon one with the... Heavy. Falcon Heavy, Falcon Heavy. Was that with the... The, the boosters? The moment, okay, the, the, the not, okay. Two, there were two epic moments in that launch. Number one was when the fairing opened and you saw the Tesla in space. Yes! And started fighting David Bowie's life on Mars. And I was just, I just could jump to the moon in that film. <laughs> and, and then they landed, like, uh, two minutes later, they landed the two boosters at the exact same time. I was just, I was, then I could have jumped to Mars. <laughs> oh, yes. That was incredible. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> it was, there, there is nothing like that. It's, it's crazy. Oh, goodness. I, one mission I cannot wait for is if it might not happen. I heard they might be filing for bankruptcy. Oh, no. Part-time scientists ever manages to get their lunar mission done, they actually want to go visit the Apollo 17 site with their rover and like take photos of the Apollo 17 lunar rover and the lander. That I cannot wait to see. I cannot wait to see it being revisited again after all these years. Yeah, but, that would be really cool. Yeah. Oh, you know, I, I, I hate to say it, but I think we should probably... So wrapping this up, is there anything um, else you'd like to say? Anything you didn't get? Yeah. Into so, I the last thing I'd like to say uh, is to really discuss the uh, give a short discussion to what I was saying earlier about the um, fundamental lack of vision in the space industry, uh, which is I think an extremely important topic. Yep. Which it, um, when, you, when you say that though, I got to tell you, you sound like. Um, a, a, like a super villain. The extreme lack of vision in space is disappointing. No, it's, 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 I'm, I'm, I'm literally paraphrasing Emperor Palpatine here. You're not wrong. Uh, <laughs> you have paid the price for your lack of vision. Uh, <laughs> yes. Yeah. Uh, so it is. It is literally a super villain quote. So you're right. Uh, so what, I think. I think people. Many of the space companies today, they're unable to see this, the industry radically grow beyond what it is today. And this is, again, this is the akin to the Gordon, um, the popular mechanics quote, you know, while, while any act today has 30,000 vacuum tubes and weighs three and a half tons, uh, computers in the future may have only 10,000 vacuum tubes and weigh only one ton. You know, it's, it's this. It's, it's Thomas Watson's, I think there is a world market for maybe five computers. It's that. It's mm -hmm. the inability to see the coming explosion, which we're in. It's the idea that it's still going to be a very small amount of, like, maybe a few constellation builders, maybe a few companies for various bespoke stuff, maybe mm -hmm. Earth, Earth observation, IoT, communication. May, weather, whatever, track, chip tracking, airplane tracking, that's it. Mm. You know, a, a market of like a few thousand satellites a year at most. And they don't see 
um, what's coming. And I think what's coming, and this is the vision, mm-hmm. which I'd like to yes. say before we wrap up, which is that I think we're going to see. Um, so the word computer, where does that come from? It comes from computing. That's what computers did once. Mm-hmm. They computed. They did. They analyzed data. They did calculations. They did trajectory analysis, whatever. Missiles, you know. Um, they literally were just glorified, very advanced calculators. Mm-hmm. Uh, and today, think of what you use your computer for. Discord, Snapchat, Facebook, WhatsApp, YouTube, um, you know, Google. None of that is computing in a pure sense. I mean, it obviously involves computing, but it's not pure computing. It's something that has massive widespread applications that's appeal to the everyday person. Mm. And in the 1980s, we started to see computers, the personal computer revolution. What it did was it took computers away from merely computing into applications for everything. So that within 10 years or 20, every non, every non-compute, every business had a computer. Like, again, you would say this in the 60s, it would sound ridiculous. You know, I am an artist. I sell prints of artworks. Why on earth would I need a math machine, a giant room-sized math machine? And today, every print artist has a computer. They use it for everything. You know, they might even do the art on it, if not the accounting and the planning and the website and all that. So the computers are being used. Non-computing companies use computers. Mm-hmm. The space revolution is when non-space companies have satellites. And this is the vision which people are failing to see. Even though it is happening in front of their eyes, we've actually seen recently, and this is all recently, in China, Xiaomi, the, the great smartphone manufacturer, they've um, started building satellites to support their, IOT, their wearable tech. Mm-hmm. They want to build satellites to provide connectivity for wearable tech. Um, a company called Geely, which is China's largest largest auto, man, auto manufacturer, yeah, kind of like Chevrolet or Ford. They're building a new factory in China to build a satellite constellation. Mm-hmm. They're going to build a massive constellation of satellites to give entertainment to their cars. Um, huh. Yeah, Tesla, Tesla got to be worried. And um, even Apple, even Apple, they're work, they're building a secret satellite team. Wow. They want to break the free of the carriers and. You know, iPhone direct to satellite. Yeah. Um, so this is just the tip of the iceberg in the beginning. We're seeing car companies, phone companies, and, you know, wearable tech companies building satellites all of a sudden. And we're going to see so much more of this in the future. And this is when the economies of personal computing begin to apply to personal satellites. And that's when I think we're going to see the costs of these things go down to a couple hundred thousand or a couple thousand or hundred dollars just like a phone or a computer oh my goodness that 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 is beautiful that is absolutely beautiful I feel like oh, I think I think we're coming up close to an hour I feel like we talk we, we like hardly scratched the surface like me too, me I, too. oh my goodness I Wow. There there are there are a gazillion topics I could have still talked about if we had more time. But <gasps> oh, oh my the, the the main thing I'd like to say is that to to draw this towards a conclusion is that I think that for me at least, I've seen a lot of open source stuff, mm-hmm. but I don't think that personal satellites will come necessarily. I may be wrong from open source. Mm-hmm. I think open source is the precursor. It's mm-hmm. I've mentioned this before to you privately. It's the Steve Wozniak versus the Steve Jobs approach. If Steve Wozniak had had it his way, he would have kept building the open source homebrew Apple One in his garage for eternity, You know, sharing it with other hobbyists, incrementally improving it, mm-hmm. and releasing it to other tech nerds who could build their own computers. Mm-hmm. Similarly with satellites, we might see incremental improvements, followed by the occasional leap like PyCube by Zach Manchester, mm-hmm. which again can only be built by people who are hardcore satellite hardware nerds, mm-hmm. not something that general public or general companies, and you know, Walgreens wants to launch a satellite, you know what I mean? Right. It's not something they can just go and get. It's a an involved nerdy tech project. And then Steve Jobs said this has applications far beyond tech nerds this has applications for the world and what we should do as apple is we should commercialize this into a non-open source product you can actually buy on the shelf in the store and 
that's what they did. And you see how that turned out for them? Trillion dollar company. <laughs> trillion dollar um, company. Trillion dollar company. Take that, billion dollar companies. And <laughs> so right now I'm actually uh, aiming to build a CubeSat platform that, it, that I would like aspirationally to be the world's lowest cost CubeSat platform. The goal is for, the, the benchmark I set for myself when doing this is that the cheapest CubeSat should cost as much as the most expensive phone. The most expensive phone is one of those foldable phones that cost like several thousand dollars. Yeah. That's, I think, a good starting point. Um, so I, I love that. Oh, so it's just... it's going, the, the aspiration is to be something you go and you simply buy. And it's not a email us to negotiate a price because if you ask, it's too high for you. Right. Um, something you can just buy, like you can buy an iPhone. Yeah. Um, yeah. Oh, that would be that. That would just be. You go for it, man. Like yeah. that. Me. I. 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 I love that. When it. When this. When this goes online, it's going to be um, at the web address, which is currently just a placeholder. But you can go to skyline dot earth and skyline. check out this. Oh, you got yes. a dot earth. Nice. Yes, because dot dot space was unavailable. <laughs> um, and. <laughs> So, this is when it when it comes. This is where you're going to be able to find it. Um, okay. Skyline right. is the name of this initiative. Do, do you have like a timeline for it, or, or are you? Yeah. So, I really do hope to. This is aspirational. This is Elon time, mm -hmm. but, um, or should I say Geffen time? But it is. I would I would like to have by the first quarter of next year, have something you could go and buy. That. Props to you, man. That is. Thank you. Oh, that is so. I, I, I hate. I absolutely hate to close off this conversation, but I, I know, like the if you if you look at the stats, all the episodes that go over fifty minutes gets the least amount of listens, and I don't know why. It's like, come on, <laughs> the long episodes are the best ones. Uh, okay. Um, that's true, but you only know once you've listened to them. So yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Um, anyways, alright, so I, I got stuff to plug, um, there, follow us on our YouTube channel, we got, um, we put up the podcast, I always say we're trying to work on something more, we're, we're trying to get something else going, um, on YouTube, and then we have, uh, you can support us on Patreon, um, with a few more benefits, uh, follow us on Twitter, we're tweeting, uh, normally pro people's project updates, uh, stuff that they're working on, um, and, uh, I think... I think that's it. Uh, later, spacers. <laughs>